I'm reading a book right now called The Hidden Life of Trees. And I'm not so far in, but one of the fascinating things that he's already talked about is the fact that trees, I was going to say talk, um, they have their own way of talking. They communicate and they communicate in all sorts of ways, uh, all, all sorts of nonverbal ways. Uh, one of them is scent. Um, and the reason he talks about the reason that they uh, share food and communicate is that they need each other. They actually take care of each other. So he says that it takes a forest to create a microclimate suitable for tree growth and sustenance. So it's not surprising that isolated trees have far shorter lives than those living connected together in forests. He goes on to say that uh, trees are so interconnected in places, in certain places, that thin root filaments woven underground can be almost unbelievable in density. And then I'm quoting here. He says one teaspoon. So one teaspoon of forest soil can contain many miles of these. He calls them hyphae. I think that's, that's the Latin technical forestry. He was a forester in Germany for 20 years term. But um, so one teaspoon can contain m many miles, just one teaspoon of these super, super thin hair like filaments that connect these trees. And he gives lots of examples of how I trees that are isolated typically just don't live as long, don't do as well. Tre even trees take care of each other. Even trees need community. Trees communicate and they have a rich society. Isn't that amazing? And that's because God made them and he made them to thrive in community. Why? Here's a theological question for you. Because God is a community, right? He's not a monad. He's not solitary. He is one God, but he's not alone. He's father, son, and spirit. He is a community loving each person loving the other one and pouring himself out for the other. And that's he made us in his image, which is why we need community. We need community with God, communion, deep, rich, meaningful communion with God, not superficial and with each other. And uh, I was listening to <clears throat> uh, a, a podcast called. Let's see. What was it called? It was called You're Not Cra the You're Not Crazy podcast. It's essentially for pastors. Uh, just reminding us, hey, you're not crazy. And it's two pastors that uh, one retired, the other still uh, still still in it. Just talking about uh, just sharing just sharing pastoral things and and uh, with other pastors and reminding reminding us that we're not crazy. Sometimes we think we are. And one of the guys, Sam Albury, talks about how in reformed evangelical churches, which ours is, um, we often turn to the gospel. We all, and I grew up Presbyterian. And I'm so glad I did. But there are some every single denomination uh, and section of the church has its blind spots, which is one reason Philippians two Paul, I don't think, is just speaking to the local church and saying that we need to um, we need to be of one a common uh, heart and mind and, and uh, serve one another and be united. And of course, Jesus prays for that in John 17. Not just speaking to one local church, but I think speaking to the church, Catholic or universal, not Roman Catholic, lower C Catholic, and saying we need each other. Presbyterians need charismatics, need Baptists, etc. And so um, in Reformed evangelical churches, we often turn the gospel into the cancellation of debt, period. And I certainly experienced this uh, growing up in the Presbyterian church, some, not all, not completely, but we have reduced the gospel Sam goes on to say, of the kingdom to the forgiveness of sins. We're preaching mercy more than grace. Mercy being 
God has um, not treated us as we deserve, right? Grace being he's given us this favor. He's poured all these things out to us. So mercy is kind of a minus. It's a good minus. Grace is a plus, right? Um, so we're preaching mercy more than grace. We're preaching that we're reducing the gospel to the cancellation of debt. Yeah, but what for? What do we say for? And, and uh, a lot of what we hear is what we're saved from, the wrath of God. Very true. Romans 3.25 would be the hot core of that uh, teaching and that expression. Uh, we are saved from the justly deserved wrath of God that Jesus took for us on the cross. But what are we saved for? And that's really what this passage is about here. We're going to start a series, three weeks. We preach it. It's the Surgeon Houston churches come together and preach this uh, same series, same text, same message, essentially, every every fall, every autumn, and for three or four weeks. And this, uh, it's called the Life Together series, and we're reminding ourselves that we are living together, sharing life together as a family of churches, um, but also as each uh, distinct church, sojourn church in our part of the city, we are sharing life together, living close together as a family, folding others, inviting others to be folded into the life of God, which is what salvation is. It's not just being forgiven of our sins. It's being folded into this rich and teeming life that will last forever, right? Um, the Christian life is more than let's not have issues with each other. That's, I'm quoting now, the other pastor of this this podcast, Ray Ortland. It's more than let's not have issues with each other, right? Uh, he, it's Jesus says to us, I've called you friends. So he's inviting us into this rich, restored relationship. All the forgiveness is for the friendship. We don't hear about that enough. And so we're going to talk about it today. We're going to talk about it these three weeks. And we're looking at the five um, explicitly stated values of Sojourn Houston. And the first two are this week, and they are family and local ministry. We value family and we value local ministry, not because we're conservative, but because God has, uh, he made us to be part of his family. We ruined that, which we'll talk about in a second. And his salvation in Christ means that he's come after us to bring us back into his family with all the benefits therein. And and how does that affect our, our ministry, our day-to-day uh, loving each other and others um, in the name of Jesus Christ? So how does that, what does that look like for our community, right? So our text is Galatians 3.28 um, through 4.7, so essentially the first part of Galatians 4. And in a nutshell, this is what Paul says. We're not going to... We're not going to walk through every aspect of the text. Don't have time. That's not the point. The focus is on fa- the fact that we've been made family. Um, but we are saved not just from sin. Okay, so we're not, we're saved not just from sin, but for sonship. Okay, um, four points. Just walk through them. We had it. So sonship. Uh, we had it. We lost it. The waiting period of the people of God. And then he regained it for us by losing it willingly. And then finally, um, what what this now means okay, and looks like, like I said, so for us in our life together. Um, briefly, the first few points, just kind of skip through them, sort of like a, a rock going over water, if you've ever skipped rocks. So sonship, being in the family of God, this rich textured community that we're made for, we had it. He made us. Look to Genesis 1, 1 and 2 um, <clears throat> foundationally for this. Uh, the gospel doesn't start with 
God's angry at you. Jesus came to save you from your sins or God saves sinners. That's not the full gospel. The full gospel starts with God made us for himself and for one another and to be fully seen and to be fully loved and to be fully known in rich textured relationship vertically and horizontally with him and with others. And that's what we're made for, which is why we have a yearning for that, which is why every song, every good song is about that. Every poem, there's so much yearning, there's so much unfulfilled longing in our lives. Where does that come from? Does it come from random (coughs) energy and molecules bouncing around because we all came from dirt and stardust? No, no, it comes from the fact that we were made by God, who is a community for community, for him. Like Augustine said on page one of his wonderful confessions, um, oh God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Um, they're restless until they rest in you. They're unquiet. Inquietum is the Latin. They're unquiet until they are quiet in you. So he made us for himself and for others. And we had that in Genesis one and two, which in it's why that drives us. And we have this sense that something's missing because it is missing because guess what? We had it, but we lost it. Point two. Genesis 3, with, with astonishing speed, with astonishing rapidity and celerity, we see that in Genesis 3, in the first six verses, um, Adam and Eve are tempted, and they succumb to that temptation um, to essentially walk away from the community of God, from the rich relationship, and to go their own way, and to disobey their parent, their good parent, God, and death sets in. It sets in them, and because they've been given dominion over all creation it sets into all that god has made and so salvation is not just us getting to heaven and us being restored it is so it's not just us getting to heaven more than that it's not just us being restored it's also all things romans chapter 8 right all things following our restoration one day and that process has already begun right but we're getting ahead of ourselves so we had this this wonderful, rich and textured community. We were, we were the family of God. We, the human, human, humanity was a family, but we started breaking up into tribes and we we're severed from relationship with God because we disobeyed him. We walked away and, um, we sin set in and rebellion against God and the disposition of our heart was changed and that is passed down to every human. It's born of Adam, which is, um, so that, uh, so we had it. We lost it. That's in Genesis three. But but it's still resonant. We're still made for that. But there's something broken in us now, right? And in fact, we are we are totally broken. Every part of us. We're not as broken as we could be, but every part of us is broken. That's what the the theological sort of tag total depravity means. It's, we're not as bad as we could be. You know, you're not Hitler, but every part of you has been corrupted by sin, including your mind. You know, that was part of the Enlightenment project that was a big failure and oversight. Uh, in, in man's hubris and pride, he sort of accepted his mind. And, and you see this in um, Cartesian thought in Descartes, where he says, uh, you know, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. He become, Man's mind becomes the measure of existence and of all things, rather than I am, rather than God. And so our minds are not accepted. Paul in Romans 1 talks about how um, our minds are darkened by sin. Um, yeah, we can still still build bridges and and um, even have beautiful relationships in part, but our minds are darkened. The closer we get to relationship and the closer we get to um, God relationship with him, certainly, and the closer we get to our own autonomy and will being threatened, 
um, the more dark, the more dark our minds are. That's called the noetic um, effect of sin from the Greek for the word mind. Noe. So um, every part of us, we, we lost this community. Right. And, and that's the first thing you see in the very first thing you see of the effects in the early chapters of Genesis, in the early chapter, in the early part of Genesis three is that right when Adam and Eve sin and disobey God, their community is fractured. There's a line that's drawn down the middle of themselves. Like Alexander Solzhenitsyn says that there's um, the line between good and evil is it, it cuts down the center of every human heart. So it's not like, oh, the problem's out there. No, it's me. G.K. Chesterton, uh, dear sir, is an answer to your problem. What is wrong with the in answer to your question? What is wrong with the world? I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton, uh, writing into the Times. Uh, we are. We're the problem, and it's and it. We are alienated from ourselves. Walker Percy in Lost in the Cosmos puts that beautifully, trenchantly, comically. And uh, and then they're alienated from each other. They start blaming each other. They hide from each other. They start covering their nakedness. They're ashamed of this exposure all of a sudden. And of course, they fear of God sets in immediately an unhealthy fear, not a wholly appropriate reverence, but a craven fear. That's not what we were made for. We were made to be fully known and loved by God. But that is not what we're now born into in the fallen Adam. Okay, so we had it. We lost it. Point three, the waiting period of the Old Testament people of God. And this is the part of the text in Galatians. Galatians uh, 3.28 through 4.7 is our text. The first part of that, Galatians 3.28 through 4.3, is really where Paul lays this out. We're not going to really attend to that text much. Um, where he talks about the waiting period of the people of God and how... Um, Really, that's the story of Genesis 3, and certainly it takes it becomes acute in Genesis 12 with the entrance of Abram onto the scene. He becomes Abraham, um, the father of the Jewish nation, through faith in God's promise, not through his own works, right? Uh, so, so from Genesis 3, from the fall, all the way through the rest of the Old Testament, or the Hebrew Bible, as the Jews call it, um, all the way up until the, the dawn the inbreaking of light with the coming of Jesus Christ and his, and his good news in Matthew chapter one, that whole rest of the, so most of the lion's share of the old Testament of the Hebrew Bible is this waiting period that Paul sort of summarizes encapsulates in, in Galatians three twenty eight through four, three, when he says, look, God made a people for himself through whom to bring the Messiah by which he would begin the process of restoring all things and making us family again. And he made these people his family, but it was like a son that has the inheritance coming to him, but he's not enjoying it yet because his father hasn't released the inheritance to him because his father's still too young. His father hasn't died. The inheritance hasn't been activated. So even though he's, it's his by, you know, de jure by law, he isn't enjoying it. And so he's basically living like a servant still. And that's a good way to think about, and that's how Paul thinks about the Old Testament the Jewish people of God before Jesus came, before Messiah came and brought us fully into our inheritance that we only, you know, we only taste partially now, but we will taste fully one day, um, is that they were living under the law. And those sons, they were basically living like servants under the weight of the law. And he talks about that more explicitly, including in other places, lots of other places in his letters. Um, and so that was the waiting period of the old, of the old Testament people of God. And, um, there was community, there was fellowship with God and with one another, but it was 
it was as if they were servants and not sons, even though they, they were sons, um, but the son hadn't come yet. And so it was this waiting period. And, um, and, and then fourthly, our fourth point is that he regained it. God regained um, this communion, this rich communion that we were made for, for us by losing it willingly. And this is where Paul really gets into some beautiful truths here. Um, some of my, some of the favorite truths that he, some of my favorite truths that he lays out in scripture here in Galatians four, um, starting in verse four through, through, through seven, really. Um, but he regained it for us by losing it really in Galatians four, four through five a is where he says this explicitly. So in the fullness of time, um, God sent forth his son. Okay. We're just going to take you kind of phrase by phrase here and then in the, in, the, in, the, in the last point, do some application here about what does this mean for us as a family of God? Okay. But, but God regained this community that we were with, with God and with each other. He, re, he recaptured it for us. He brought us back into that by losing it willingly at the cross. Um, and Paul tells us that in the fullness of time, God, after this waiting period, when it was, when the time was just right, God sent forth his son. And I love this phrase here. It's so terse and it's so, encapsulates and expresses um, the initiative, the sovereign initiative in our salvation of, of the Godhead, of God himself. We, we were n- not only passive, we're completely passive as Luther, the reformer, take, is at pains to show in his works and, um, and in his sermons. But uh, we, were, we were not just passive, we were dead, Paul says in Ephesians 2, in our sins and our trespasses. We were hating God. We were dead to him. Uh, and he, in the midst of our rebellion and deadness, and, um, sitting under the judgment of our own sin, he sent forth his son. He did it. He took the initiative. You know, a lot of times when we think about our salvation, we think about Jesus. And we should. But God the Father sent Jesus, his precious son, on a mission and that word, that verb there in the Greek, sent, it encapsulates, it includes with it the idea of mission. It means to be sent on a mission. And the mission that God had for his son was to save us, not just from our sins, but for this rich commun- communion with him and with others that we had lost because of our sin. Sin isolates us. Sin makes us proud. Sin um, pushes us away from ourselves and other people and certainly from God. But Jesus came toward us in our sin to sit with us, to walk with us, to touch us, to speak words of life to us, and then to allow us in our sin to crucify him and to become the sin bearer in our place that we, that he might, that nothing might stand anymore between us and God and to bring us back. So, um, God sent forth his son, right? And we were completely passive. In, in this salvation, and that really encapsulates that truth. He was born of a woman. Um, you know, here at last is the is the fulfillment of the first gospel promise that we that God articulates in Genesis three fifteen. The seed of the woman is going to come and crush the head of the serpent. Finally, Jesus, after centuries and centuries and centuries, Jesus passes through the heavens in the fullness of time. He's sent by his Father on a mission to save us. He's born of a woman. Here's how it's going to happen. None of us expected, it. even though the scriptures foretold it, right? God can't be a baby. Well, yes, he can. And he was born of a woman. And that's so important because only a man, now that he's born of a woman, but his father's not Joseph. His father is God. And he's conceived by the Holy Spirit, God. 
God, he's fully God, but he's also born of woman, fully and truly human. Only a human can represent humans. An alligator cannot. Only a human can represent humans, but only God can save us, is powerful enough to save us. Only a human can die. Turns out we needed someone to take the fall for us in our place. That's what all the slain calves and sheep and rams in the Old Testament pointed to. None of them were reminded, were told in the New Testament. None of them actually took away sins. They were all God getting his people ready, getting the world ready through his people for the one who would actually come and take away sins. Behold, John the Baptist, Jesus's cousin said when he saw Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. His sacrifice was actually effective. In becoming a man, he was able to be put to death. If he, God can't be put to death, but the God-man can. So he was able to represent us in life and in death, able to be killed, able, able for us to not recognize that he was God, which is why we were able to crucify him, right? But as God, able to take into himself the sins of the world and actually, as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, to actually become somehow in the mystery of God. He actually became our sin. He tasted it. He felt it to the nth degree. He descended to the utter depths of hell. Everything you would have experienced if you had not trusted in him. Everything you will experience if you choose to bear your own sin and to stand before God on your own record and not to hide in Christ by faith. He took. Okay. Um, John Stott, a theologian, pastor in Britain, said, if he had not been man, he could not have redeemed men. If he had not been a righteous man, he could not have redeemed unrighteous men. So he would have had to die for his own sins, right? But he didn't die for his own sins, so why did he die? He died for ours, right? And Stott goes on, and if he had not been God's son, he could not have redeemed men for God or made them the sons of God. So he brings us into the family of God. That's the whole point, right? What do we save from? Sin, the wrath of God, our just punishment. What do we say for, though? For what he already had but gave up for us. He gave it up on the cross so that we might get it. Martin Luther calls that the great exchange. Paul goes on to say he was born not just of a woman, but he was born under the law. He subjected himself willingly to the law. He kept every law. He fulfilled every law, Matthew 5, 17, for us. He didn't need to keep it. He's the son of God. He'd never broken it. He wasn't subject to it. He subjected himself as a human, as a Jewish man, Willingly for why? Why did he keep it all for you? So your salvation isn't just being saved from sin and then being brought in the family of God. It's being saved from sin and it's being given his law keeping, his record. That's what faith apprehends, grabs hold of, receives. My New Testament professor, Mike Kruger, um, would teach Sunday school. And in some of his Sunday school classes, he'd start the class off with the question that he write on the whiteboard. Uh, we are saved. By, by works, true or false. We are saved by works. And of course, it's a setup. Every good Presbyterian, which he was at a Presbyterian church, um, uptown president Charlotte, probably still is. He, uh, every Presby good Presbyterian knows to say, we are not saved by works. We're saved by, by grace through faith. Uh, but we are saved by grace through faith. But what grace is, is the work of God applied to us. We are saved by works. But not, here's the key word, not our works. We're not saved by our works at all. Our works can avail us nothing. They're like filthy, dirty rags, crap rags, minstrel rags. And you think I'm being dirty. That's the word Paul uses 
in Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. No. We're saved by his perfect works for us. That's what faith receives. Um, okay, Luther has good things to say. We're not going to talk about them. He was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. And this is the hot core uh, before Paul moves to the glorious truth that this whole passage pours into about, well, I'll get there in a second, our redemption, what was accomplished, how we were purchased at the price of the blood of the Son of God. To re- he came to redeem those who were under the law, who were enslaved by this good law. Because the good law shows us how bad we are. We can't keep it. We break it. We love to break it. We hate God's laws. Psalm chapter 2. God sent forth his son, but he also put forth his son. Romans 3.25. Um, that's what's in view here, right? God did all this to purchase us. A price had to be paid. If we pay it, we're separated from him forever. So he paid it in our place. And he, in death, couldn't keep him down. He's God. He rose, having paid that price from the dead. Redeem is the key word here, though. Um, it kind of makes us yawn because it seems churchy. We hear it a lot if we've been in church for any amount of time. Um, but it's a, it's a money word. It's a marketplace word. Its word parts are ex and agorazo in the Greek. Ex means out of. And agorazo comes from agora, which is a marketplace where all the buying and selling where it was done in the town square. So um, the parts of this word together mean out of the market or off the market because out of the market. So we can see how what the word came to mean is to liberate. What it means is to liberate or to free. So a slave was placed on the auction block, and if he was bought by a good master, the price, the full price was paid for him, and he was now property of that good master. He was taken off the market, out of the market. He's now owned uh, by a good man, and God purchased us at the price of his own son. We are bought and paid for if indeed we trust in Jesus Christ. The highest price was paid for us. God won us at the auction. He, he bought us and, and we are his. Freedom isn't being able to do whatever we want to do and live how we want to live for our own um, gratification, for our own wish fulfillment. Um, it's being the property of a good master being bought and paid for by God himself. We're either, we're not, we're never ever captains of our own ship. We are either uh, the prop, we were sold into sin and slavery under the wrath of God with, with Satan as our father, a bad, very, very bad master, or we are God's bought and paid for by his blood, the blood of his son. The gospel is this, that God has bought us with the blood of his son, Jesus. So um, what is, that's what, that's what redemption means. It means that we've been bought by God at the price of his son. Um, what does this mean, final point, and look like, and then some application? In brief, Paul in, in, four, in four, six, really four, five, B, six, and seven of Galatians pours, if you can imagine this passage that I've kind of walked partly through, it's like a funnel. And the funnel tip is this verse. All that redemption, all that being saved from, in the fullness of time, Jesus coming to rescue us, passing through the heavens, being sent and put forward by his Father to rescue us, to die in our place, to live in our place, is for the purpose of what? Just being free to live how we want? No. It's for the purpose of adoption. 
So we're freed from our sins for the purpose of being made family with God. That's, that's the whole enchilada. And that's what Paul says here. He pours all of that truth, all of that salvation and rescue into the word adoption. We, some have called adoption the crown jewel of the Christian faith. Christ Jesus came to make us sons. He brought us into his inheritance as a son. We, we literally, if you're in Christ by faith, you literally have, you're, you're privy to all of the riches of Jesus Christ and everything that he has. You're, you're tasting some of that now, but now we see as through a, a, a bad mirror very darkly and dimly. But when we see him face to face and he returns to make all things new and to, to completely vanquish sin and evil, uh, we are going to taste the fullness of that inheritance and it's going to be overwhelming. Um, as John Stott says, we're not just freed from slavery. We're freed from slavery to be made sons. Um, the, again, the entire sermon and the entire text pours into this one word, zooms into it. We've been adopted into God's family. And then here, Paul, in verse six, uses the same verb that he uses in verse four for God. Just as God sent that verb, sent his son, remember, it's to send on mission. Just as God sent his own son to save us and make us sons, so has the same verb in the Greek, sent his spirit into us to 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 guarantee to us, to secure our salvation and to guarantee to us that we are indeed his children. It's his mark. And it is to make us alive. It's to give us the life that we have believed on in believing on Jesus Christ. He comes and makes his home in us and brings us to himself. And one day will come and be with us. So the father, in a nutshell, the father sends the son. The son saves us, secures that salvation. It's not up for grabs. Believe on him and be saved. So the father sends the son. The son saves us. And the spirit secures or applies our salvation and our sonship. Um, and all of God is always at work in all these aspects. So just in closing, um, some application. We are the, the church is the family. It, the church is a family. The church isn't a place to go on Sunday. People, everyone says, even Christians, I mean, mostly Christians. Christians say, I'm going to church. You're not going to church. I'm sorry, but words matter. I know it's parlance, but the Bible does not speak ever about the church in that way, uh, as far as I'm aware. The church is the people of God. It's, it's the ecclesia. It's the kahal in the Hebrew. It's the it's God's family. We don't go to church. We are the church. And as a church, we are a rich community, loving one another as a family, and then inviting other people into that family wherever we go. Right. So the church, the church has left the building. When you leave on Sunday, you we gather to scatter as salt over the stake of the world. Right. As light into the darkness. Um. Back to that podcast, You're Not Crazy, Ray Orland and Sam Albury. Um, they say that gospel doctrine should create gospel culture. So all that stuff we've just been talking about, all those glorious truths should mean that we shouldn't just know them. They should actually mean that we love each other well. We invite others into not just our homes, not just say hi. We invite each other into our hearts. We share the nitty gritty and we invite others, outsiders especially, into that community. He's redeemed us to adopt us. Um, we're not saved just to say hi to each other. Christ has welcomed us in at the at infinite cost to himself, to his very heart. And so we ought to do the same thing with one another. Not just tolerate each other, but love each other. Um, open our hearts to each other. Sacrifice for one another. Um, 
So another thing that they say on the podcast, I have no right to settle for a thin and shallow relationship with you. I can't have a thousand thick relationships, but I can be open to everyone I encounter. I can be welcoming because of the gospel. Christ has welcomed me. Um, Ray says, when I feel with a man, with a man friend, that things are getting a little awkward because we're getting vulnerable, because we're opening up our hearts, right? That's good. We're getting somewhere. Transparency, honesty, depth, the kind of thing that Jesus, that God made us for, that we lost, he recaptured and came to bring us back into. Um, and to invite other people into that. And people aren't used to this kind of stuff. People are used to just sort of platitudes and superficialities. But to bring people into our very hearts, the good stuff, our sin doesn't any, any longer define us as a family of God. Jesus Christ, the righteous, defines us and identifies us. And so we can be free to share our sin struggles, not to be voyeuristic, but to say, I'm really struggling with this. This is, doesn't identify me. Though what identifies me is that I'm a son or a daughter of the king. And you are too. And you, or you can be, if indeed you're um, outside the family of God, but come in. Uh, the water's fine, right? Um, Sam talks about how he's like in the middle of a podcast. He's like, man, I'm convicted by this. I was I'm thinking just now about uh, when I, he goes, when I was at church again. No, you weren't at church. You, you, the church, you, the church was gathering in a building, but fine. I get it. It's a, uh, it's, it's just a, a brief way of talking about it. But he said, when I was at church last Sunday, I, I saw a guy and I thought to myself, man, that guy's, that guy's hard work. And so he said, I actually turned uh, from approaching him and went to somebody else that's easier, that, that's more enjoyable. Uh, and he said, man, that, that's so convicting. Like, I need to go uh, make a B. He goes, I'm going to make a beeline for that guy next next Sunday and dig in uh, because he's family. And, 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 and this sort of thing, this sort of community takes it takes work. There are two mindsets when I walk into a room. The first is here I am. In other words, uh, one of my teachers said that there are two types of people at a party or in the world. The first one comes to the party and expects people to come to them. So here I am. That's that person. But the second person, instead of saying here I am, they say there you are. They're looking outward. That's God. He's faced outward loving his son. The son is faced back loving his father in this community. And the spirit is the outpouring of their love. Um, the, the father sin, he's outward going. It's why he made all things, Jonathan Edwards. He sent out his son to rescue us. The, the, sin, the son came out to, to get us, to accomplish our salvation. The spirit is sent out to us, poured out into our hearts. And so we are to be an out, outgoing, outward focused people. Sin curves us in on ourselves and make us, makes us super concerned about us. First person I look at in a photo is always me. God changes that through Christ. He makes us outward looking. We're on the hunt. We're on mission as the people of God. Loving him, loving each other, loving the outsider. And I've really experienced that with this Surgeon Galleria family. Um, and as a family, we are to put a premium on going after those that we live around, our neighbors, um, especially in the homeless, the poor, the broken among us, those that are in need in our community. And I'm looking forward to starting um, to to this fall, hopefully, the, the for the love of Galleria partnership, um, where we go, we go after um, certain uh, categories of, of folks in our society, that, in our in the Galleria area, in our geography that are that are lost and they're hurting and that need help, right? That's what that's what has that's what God has done with us, and that's that's what we um, are about. Therefore, it's what that's how we work because of the Holy Spirit in us and because we've been rescued. So um, that's how. 
family translates to local ministry because we um, we go after those around us. We go after those even outside. It, it, this has a, glo- a global reach. But, you know, in the Galleria and certainly in Houston, we the nations are, are here. They're on our doorstep. Reach a neighbor, reach the nations. And, and, and the Galleria is such an international, multi-ethnic, multinational um, spot. One of the one of the probably the most in the world, probably most in the history of the world. So that we we reach this area, we saturate this area with the love of God. We see culture and people transformed by being brought into his family. We see uh, it, that radiates outward to every point on the globe because the nations are here. Um, and so local ministry is a premium. It's also a premium just by virtue of what the church is, right? If the church is the family of God and families live together, they share life. That's how life gets thick. That's how we that's how we follow Christ together. That's how we um we invite other people, not just into my solo life, not just have a Bible study, but into the life of this community, this family of God. Um, that's how it works. And so for that, we need to live close together. And, and as we live together, we, we minister to those around us together. Right. Um, and so I just finish, I guess, with um, a couple things. One, one of those partnerships that I would love to to see us grab hold of and commit to is an adoption and fostering just orphan care. Um, Montrose has done it. Uh, Oak Forest has done it. I believe Heights and one of the ministers at Oak Forest uh, and his wife have started. It's uh, I think it's called fostering family used to be fostering Hope Houston, but uh, fostering family. And they help, they help parents that want to foster children. Um, and then adoption as well. Just as we've been adopted, one of the most Christian things we can do is to extend that adoption out to others, to bring orphans in to our family, into the family of God. And so I want to be formally connected with that ministry. I want to be a people who are bringing spiritual orphans in, who are bringing physical orphans in um, and loving them. And I know that others of you have that heart and Robin and I would love in the next 18 months to really, get on that horse and ride as a family. Um, and then, you know, sending lastly, just we are as a, as a family of God who minister to those around us um, and bring, and, and, and bring, fold them into the life of the family of God. Um, you know, just thinking about what families do families, you know, Psalm 127, four says that like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. So what is an arrow? What's a, ch- a child for? Well, a child is for keeping in for a while and training and loving always. But then eventually a, ch- a child, you don't keep the child in your home always. That's sad. I mean, even God sent forth his own son. We too, made in his image, are called to send, to put that child, as it were, um, to put that notch in the, in the string, to pull that string back on the bow and to release. Children are made to be released after a time into the world that they might really spread our family as it were um, throughout the world throughout the communities they live in and so that's really what this family of god is about it's it's to, to see the kingdom of god grow by by investing multiplying and sending so it's a raise up and release thing so on an individual with disciples we want to be and that's going to be happening this fall where we formally initiate our uh, just a more robust uh, discipleship focus where we are in discipleship groups. We're in D groups. We are 
reaching the lost. We are discipling them, pouring our lives into them, teaching them to obey all that Christ commanded, walking, following Jesus with them, and then releasing them to go do the same. Um, so on an individual level and then we, on a house church level, we don't, we, you know, we, we raise up leaders and, and core teams to send them out. We're doing that this coming week um, with a house church. And so we want, it's a tearful goodbye. We want to keep them because we love them, but we want to send them more because God sent forth his own son. And so we're ascending family. So we're sending them to a new geography that's just outside of ours. Um, and we want to saturate the geography we're in. We want to, we want a house church on every block, right? Not just like one per neighborhood. Um, so we do that with, with disciples. We do it with house churches and we do it with, with, with church plants. Um, so Derek Kidner in closing, um, comment, one of my favorite commentators of the old Testament on this verse, Psalm 127, four, he said, it's not untypical. So kids are like arrows. They're made to be released, right? It's not untypical of God's gifts that first they're liabilities, which children certainly are, right? Or at least responsibilities before they become obvious assets. The greater their promise, the more likely that these sons will be a handful before they are a quiverful, which is such a great line. He's so pithy. Um, investing in and sending disciples, parishes, or house churches and plants is work. And in a sense, it's loss. And it's not sexy. It's not megachurch, but it's the way of the master. And it's the way of God's kingdom. And it's the way that his kingdom grows. God bless you all.